Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison, and to all English listeners, sorry you don't have the right sort of hangover this morning, I don't either. There's only one story today, England's 3-2 defeat on penalties to Italy in last night's Euro 2020 final, after weeks of rising excitement across the country. The young team that impressed so much got England increasingly believing that this time would be different, but in the end it wasn't to be. And here with me to talk about England's fate and the tournament at large, I've got two experts who've been right in the thick of it. Lindsay Hooper is a football journalist of 15 years standing. She's done BBC Final Score. She does Premier League Today. She's covered four World Cups. And she's the co-founder of the Offside Rule podcast, which uh, with women journalists covering men's and women's football. And it's an exemplary listen. Hello, Lindsay. How are you feeling this morning? Hello. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I am a little raw. Be gentle with me. Yeah, because you were in the fan zone in Trafalgar Square, weren't you? I was. It took me a very long time to get home as well. It was such a, a roller coaster ride from that euphoria from the opening few minutes to then mm. just holding and holding and holding on and then not even really wanting to look as the penalties were being taken. It feels like it just ebbed away a, a part of my soul and a part of my energy. Um, but yeah, it it was probably on the night, Italy's better night, wasn't it? Also, returning to the bunker and having also having worked into the small hours and needed a lot of coffee to wake himself up right now, friend of the podcast, Philip Beauclair, England correspondent for France Football Magazine and regular on the BBC and Guardian Football Weekly. Hello, Philip. How are you today? Uh, I've been better. <laughs> where, did, where, did, where did you watch? Oh, I watched at home, but I watched with uh, some, some English friends uh, next door to some Italian neighbours. So it was, was a bit noisy. Yeah, I bet. Well, let, <laughs> first up, let's just talk about the game before we talk about the wider meaning of it all. I mean, it is, there's no getting away from it. It's bitterly disappointing and probably worse because it just, it felt like deja vu all over again. Penalties. Lindsay, what was your ass- assessment of the game overall? I mean, you were just saying that we came out so well, that incredible Luke Shaw opener. What, what did you think of the game overall? Yeah, I suppose in hindsight now, we probably scored too early, but Luke Shaw's finish was exemplary. Um, that cross from Kieran Trippier, I think the run as well that Carl Walker made just to create a bit more space for him and a bit more time to get his head up was, was brilliant. And it was such such the start that we wanted to see. And then I think for the next 20 or so minutes, England really asked questions of the Italians and I think they were rattled. And I think that's the period where we really needed a second. But after that, I felt that Italy got in charge of the game. Um, they worked England out to a degree and they gradually grew as it went on. Um, I thought the saving grace, because we were, we were just holding on towards the end of that first half, I thought the saving grace might have been the halftime team talk and just clearing a few uh, of those nerves and 
taken an assessment to go out there and, and start again as we had done in the first half. And that never came. Um, in fact, it was the first time this tournament that I watched and I thought England players looked really tired. They started to become passengers. They were they were following the ball. They were out of possession more than they were in possession. And that was really draining energy levels. And I worried then in that second half. And, and I think it was about us holding on then. But then extra time, I think England grew back into it a little Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like changes could have happened earlier. And then penalties, as we know, is just a lottery. When you get to that point, it is a lottery. Well, yeah, I mean, we can, we can talk about that in a minute because everybody is now a penalties expert within 20 minutes of the end of the final whistle. Suddenly the country's full of penalties experts. But Philip, I want to ask you, what, what, what did you think? I mean, initially, the, the England did not seem overawed or, or susceptible to the dark arts at all, did they? They really seemed to be, in the first half of the first half, they really seemed to be on top of it. Yeah, they were they were very good indeed, and um, also what what impressed me was their willingness to make the ball uh, progress very very quickly from one line to the next uh, with those raking passes, going through vertical passes of which uh, you know so, so several players actually uh, did them. I think Maguire, um, Kelvin Phillips, who by the way had, had a wonderful game, mm-hmm. uh, which probably will be forgotten. In a way, that's a typical as all games which are settled by penalties. There will be an awful lot of um, recency bias uh, in the way that mm-hmm. the game is talked about, as if we needed to find reasons why it is that England didn't lose. Actually, they drew, but mm-hmm. they lost the trophy uh, on penalties. Uh, but on the other hand, um, that that goal, the equalising goal, was coming because Manchini did a couple of little tactical changes. Uh, Insigne, in, in particular, uh, saw his role change to that of a, almost like a number ten. Um, mm. With you know Kiesa, for example, like a shadow striker coming in from the inside, from the outside, and and England didn't quite know how to react to that. And uh, when you see the game overall, honestly, um, Italy were the better side. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Even though, like Lindsay, I agree. I thought that in extra in extra time, I thought, ooh, England has found a second wind here. Yeah, and, and they might they might do something because when Grealish came on, obviously fresh legs, but also fresh intent. I thought that the Italians more or less decided, mm, we're not going to take too many risks now. So I wouldn't say the game was there for the taking, but it wasn't there for the taking away either. So uh, in the end, you know, it wasn't quite enough. 30 minutes um, of uh, excellent play is not quite enough, but it was such a tense, tense game. Uh, I, I don't think that honestly it reached the summits that, for example, the game between Italy and Spain did. Uh, it yeah. wasn't. It was a much more. Uh, it, it was a more traditional and and angrier affair at times. Um, but there you go again. I, I think we've got to be very careful when we look at the game and to afterwards point the finger at um, Guy Southgate, for example, for some of the choices he made. Even if, like Lindsay, I think I was really, really waiting for these substitutions to happen. And but to remember that if uh, you know a couple of the uh, England penalty takers had hit home, which against Donnarumma is a big ask, mm. um, we would be talking about about it completely differently. Absolutely. Well, Lindsay, I want to ask you about that because, you know, the consensual sort of like wise guy armchair take on this is it's all about Southgate made terrible decisions on the penalties and he, he took off Henderson, who's a, who's a, men, uh, who's a mentality giant um, and leaves it in the hands of uh, Saka and Rashford, these, these young lads. What did you think of this? I mean, obviously, like I say, the country's the country's full of expert England managers now. All of a sudden, yeah, it's really tough, actually, Andrew, because 
I don't want to criticise Gareth Southgate too much. You know, he's the, mm-hmm. he's the first manager to get us to this position in a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. We have enjoyed being in a major final. And I honestly didn't think that was going to happen in my lifetime from watching England, the amount of air miles I've put in <laughs> going everywhere and seeing them exit early or exit to yeah. teams like Iceland as they did in 2016. So I don't want to lay too much at his door because I think Overall, he did a wonderful job. Mm. I, there is a book coming, right? So, however, <laughs> how do I give you a fancy book? I cannot, and this <laughs> is my personal opinion, I cannot get past the fact that he put that responsibility at the end on a, on a, a 19-year-old's shoulders. And I mm. just don't think that there are many managers in that World Cup that would have done the same. I just yeah. don't get it. I just don't get it. I, you had Jack Grealish there 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 were like you say there were more elder statesmen in the team and for the damage that that could do to a to a young 19 year old who I think had a sensational tournament Mm -hmm. I think you protect him at all costs um I I just didn't get that decision well Philippe you you were tweeting last night that you can't wait for the first Arsenal game so we can show Saka how much we love him Yep. And well, there has not been a rounding on the players. Like we, we've seen in previous penalty disasters, Stuart Pearce got balled out, Southgate himself got balled out. And there ha- there's been a, like a circling of the fans around these players. And, and you know, Lindsay, you just mentioned the exit against Iceland. That was shameful. This wasn't shameful at all. Do you think that, that you know, the, the relationship of the, with the players and the fans has changed through this tournament? Uh, without a doubt. I think it's it's been a case of a homecoming for many many fans who felt uh, alienated from this team for a long time. But the team has managed, thanks to its behaviour on and off the field, and when I say the team, I include everybody. That um, is also Gary Southgate, also quite a few people at the FA who've had a very good tournament as well. We never talk about these people, but the FA takes a lot of stick. Um, in this particular case, um, it shouldn't. And they have, but there were still, when you say that, I think people have rounded, I mean, have gathered round uh, the players who missed their penalties. Unfortunately, not all of the people uh, have done yeah. such a thing. Uh, I'm sure we will come to that in a, in a minute. But by and large, and by and very large, yes, it has been a tournament of reconciliation uh, of the fans with their team and reconciliation as well uh, within the country as a whole. Uh, and for that, it's it's a it's a magnificent success, I suppose, regardless of how bitter and frustrated and uh, and sad and perhaps even angry some people are feeling this morning. Lindsay, you're just talking about experience. I mean, there's a dimension of experience for Southgate as well. He is young-ish as 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 managers go. Players and managers don't acquire that experience without sometimes making big calls that go wrong. What what do you think this tournament is going to do to the trajectory of Southgate's career to the way he thinks about football. It seems mad to imagine that he'd go. Oh, I think that that is impossible to happen, yeah. to be honest. Just from just from the standing that he has at the FA, let alone with the, the majority of England fans. So I think what he's shown is, is that this England team are capable of progressing. So if anyone was watching the World Cup in Russia and thinking that might have been a bit of a fluke, the draw opened up... Um, feeling it was a one-off of us getting to that semi-final. What he did was he laid out very early doors. No, anything but a semi-final will be a failure. 
So even in his own words, he's been a success because he got past that that stage and England have progressed further. So I, I think he will have the backing. I think these young players, you know, when we watch teams, uh, domestic teams in Champions League football, and for any that have got to Champions League finals in recent years, and I'm thinking of Spurs fans at the minute, and you haven't experienced that before, often it is you've got to taste that defeat. You've got to taste how bad a feeling it is and it and it resonates with you in order to go again so that when you're in that position again another time, you make sure it counts. Mm. And I'm sure that's what he will be saying to these players is that you have to learn from this. The pretty young bunch of players and collectively they've shown that they're together. So um, there's no reason why they can't be together in defeat as much as they've been together in success. So... I think this is a huge, huge learning curve for this England team and one that I hope they can use for the good. I suppose one one index of that is uh, how often do you hear, have you heard in the past weekend people saying, well, at least we beat Germany. It's like that's in the distant past now. That's, <laughs> that would have been regarded as the absolute Everest moment. And now it's just one of the stages in the progress of, of, the, of this tournament. Yes, and, and actually the way that there were throwbacks to that Germany performance, certainly in the starting eleven, the system and the way that Gareth set up, I think he expected the game against Italy to go along the same lines. And it could mm. have done. I think it really could have done. Germany are and were not the team that we've known in the past. And I think we need to remember that. Yeah. But we shouldn't take anything away from the fact that they are old rivals and we managed to to get past them um there was a very convincing performance in Rome and I'm going to stress in Rome because everyone's Mm -hmm. saying about these home home Wembley performances but actually our best one came away it came in Rome against Ukraine and and there was no stopping England that night that was just a real confidence booster and then the character building came in the Denmark game and now there's an even bigger character test I guess we do have to talk about the unpleasant aspect of yesterday. There were some pretty horrible scenes off the pitch. Uh, you know, fans breaking into Wembley, chaos bottles thrown in the West End, reports of all sorts of violence. Lindsay, you were tweeting that you, you disown these fans. Uh, you know, we thought we'd escaped this kind of thing. And now it's now it's back. Why can't we escape it? It seems like there is a curse somewhere in, you know, the, in the match-going side of England fans that, that will not let this go. Nope. I I wish I knew why, and I'm sure... Philippe, do you want to start here? Mm. Well, I I would say that if I use a very broad brush to try and explain, explain, find a rationale behind this, is that I think there is a huge cultural problem in this country which has got to uh, a kind of uh, toxic masculinity because we're only talking about men here young men, most of them, and that it runs very, very, very deep. Football, as ever, is is remarkable prism through through which to look at what is right and what is wrong in your society. Everything mm. is enhanced, everything is magnified. And in this case, we saw the behavior of these guys was no different from the behavior I see in the West End on a Friday night uh, at the exit of some pubs or nightclubs, but of course multiplied by a thousand because of the number of people involved and also because of the very peculiar circumstances around this final. The fact that for, for some people and for these people, 
it was like um, a free ticket to um, absolutely appalling behavior as if, you know, a, a big weight, as if, you know, the, it's like the school bell has rung. Yeah. We're on the holidays, but what do we do in our holidays? We smash glasses, we kick the hell out of each other. I could have used another word mm. here. And we're just uh, lads. I'm not absolutely sure, by the way, that all of these guys were necessarily England fans. Um, no. Um, no. I, th- I think they, they come from, they, pro- many of them, probably people who don't go to a single game during the year. And it's mm. just that England crystallizes, unfortunately, and there is a problem with the England team for that, which, mm. to be honest, the FA has tried to address directly, which Gareth Southgate has addressed more than any manager I can think of, which makes it, it is already, you know, the second greatest England manager of all time after what he's done, be- behind Sir Arthur Ramsey, of course. It's something which has to do with the state of the country, I'm afraid, and and the state again of. For me, yes, it has to be. It has to do with a kind of toxic masculinity, which for some reason is not as present in other countries, but here yeah. is a reality. Lindsay, there was a huge contrast between the kind of you know the good humour and the support for England in the in the country at large, what you might call the TV audience. And you know, contrasting with reports of genuinely nasty behaviour from some sections of the England fans in the stadium, and I, you know, I, you know, told a friend who'd, who'd actually you know been to Wembley, saying that for the, the German game, they'd never felt such a toxic atmosphere in the stadium, and that maybe that this stuff is this stuff is being underreported because it is it is so unpleasant. What what was what's your personal experience? I mean, all the stories we heard that Danish family being attacked on a bus, the sickening abuse of the German girl of uh, who was shown on television crying. With their dad what do you think is the kind of the reality of what's really going on in the in the corpus of england fans there i think there's a problem in society i agree with Mm. philippe and these aren't england fans you know anyone who was getting up at 6 a.m to go to the pub to start drinking for a game that didn't kick off till eight o'clock where you know that you could be bleary-eyed and not with it if you're an England fan and your team has got to a major championship final, do you not want to take every bit of that in and watch yeah. every single kick of the ball? Because I couldn't take my eyes off it, right? Yes. I don't get it. I don't get why you want to be not in your best state of mind to take all of that in. I can't get my head around that. Now, of course, there's a p- bit of a party atmosphere. And for most people who've got an element of self-control and non-thuggish and yobbish behavior, they mm. can completely control themselves with that, have a few drinks, see friends, make a day of it, make an occasion, and absolutely take in the match. But these are not England fans. Often yeah. at matches, the problems that I've seen in the past, their back is to the screen, the back is to the action wherever I've been, they're not watching. They just want to make trouble. We need to get Mm. them out of this sport. It came from a working class route, but it has changed into a family spectacle. And it is now about inclusion. And we see that from the messages that the FA give out from the governing bodies and world governing bodies as well. So we want everyone Mm. to enjoy this sport. So get rid of the minority that are intimidating, aggressive, and just downright thuggish because nobody wants to see it. We are ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed. You know, I've got friends all over the world and that's the picture that they have of us English and it's it's tiring it's exhausting it's boring just go yeah. and find something else to do if you've got to go and like chop down some trees and have a heavy axe and get rid of some some sweat and adrenaline go and do it somewhere else we don't want you we don't want you it does seem a long time ago that politicians were 
endorsing the booze and uh you know saying fans have every right to attack players for having a political opinion that seems to have been completely submerged by the the achievements that England have pulled off almost as if the players went over the politicians heads to talk directly to the fans Philippe, do you think that that aspect of the of the relationship has changed? That now the idea that you can just stand there and say keep politics out of sport. Well, sport is political, and yeah. most fans in the country understand that now. That the England side stands for something good. Yeah, of course, and um, of course, football has always been political. All sports have always been political. Even the Olympics at the beginning of Baron Pierre de Coubertin, you know, in eighteen ninety six, there was a political dimension to it. The difference, though, is that I can I cannot think of any team. Uh, which has taken uh, a political stance, and I call it political. I know that the FA is extremely reluctant, of course, to uh, to say that because if immediately people think in terms of party political. No, no, that, that it's proper politics. It's proper politics. It's about what you would want your society to to look like or to aspire to, and what you want to do to achieve that that objective which, of course, is something that has gone very much out of the political discourse of the party political discourse in recent years. So it is the most political uh, that I think a team has been in any tournament. And honestly, I'm, you know, I'm asking you as well, because it's a question I've been, I've been asking myself. I've been trying to find other examples of that, and I haven't. There is, it's, which is, there is something very unique around yeah. this, this England team in the way that it has the courage to make very, very big, bold, uh, daring statements, which are, you know, statements about, you would imagine, are the ones which would be the rigor in a, in a proper society, but yeah. which have been, you know, eroded constantly, especially in the past five years. And they are a reminder of, I think, what people are missing and what people are hating in the political life of this country at the moment. And they managed to do that, and better than that, they've managed to unite people behind them in that. And uh, so politicians should keep out of, of football, but politics are very much a part of football. One of the standout quotes was Gary Neville saying, we've, we've had such terrible leadership in this country over the past few years, and Gareth Southgate has shown good leadership. And that was very pointed. He knew exactly who he was talking about. And at that, to me, that's what enables the England side to do these things and, and be accepted, which is that, you know, they clearly... You know, South, Southgate is a leader. He's an inspirational figure. They can clearly see what 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 they consider to be right, and I'm frightened of saying it, which which is a rarity at the moment in politics. But we've got you both here as football experts as well. And just moving away from England for a bit, I want to ask you about the tournament at large. I mean, how 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 has this tournament changed? football how football will be played maybe down at the at the level of the things that an armchair person like me wouldn't notice Lindsay, how do you think it's uh, how do you think this has uh, affected the way football is going to go in future i think it's set a benchmark in terms of refereeing standards i've been really really impressed i think var decisions took hardly any time at all most of them and i think i think that was a fantastic showcase and it was a good shop window to say to every single nation that are adapting that this is how it can be be ran i also felt that the refereeing in general it was all about letting the football flow it was mm. i enjoyed watching the football again i felt like we hardly ever spoke about decisions or about refereeing performances and that was that was really great for me i i, I honestly think that that is uh, a beacon now that we can we can hold up for other tournaments to say yeah this is this is 
Euro 2020 standards and nothing else will suffice. What about your heroes and villains? I mean, I, I suggested in our email exchanges before this podcast that Chiellini might get the villain for his mind games against Jordi <laughs> Alba in the penalties, and Philip was highly indignant at this thought. <laughs> Philip, who are the heroes and villains for you? Oh, Chiellini is a hero, no doubt about that. For me, one of the players of the tournament, if not the player of the tournament. I have to say that the sight of Donnarumma and uh, Chiellini coming onto the turf in Wembley, I mean, the two finest noses in world football yes it's something that will stay with me it's just magnificent <laughs> there have been plenty of so-called heroes obviously simon Kerr, uh the danish captain was yes. uh, a huge figure in in the tournament as tor- denmark was also a magnificent example of another thing which by the way i i find extremely comforting in what is otherwise been a a crazy tournament, an insane, absurd tournament in terms of the way it was organised, is the fact that the collective has, has had the edge over the individual. The teams that have done the best have not been the teams with individuals who uh, have massive contracts with Nike or whatever. They've been the triumph of, of collectives. Denmark, uh, England, Italy, certainly, and even this new Spain, yeah. Uh, that we sing with Luis Enrique. So the the villains, um, I mean, they've been the heroes. We could the list would be so long because I think almost in every every single team that did something, you you had players who suddenly rose to the occasion. Pedri was just magnificent with Spain, for example. Uh, with England, who was expecting? I think Jordan Henderson has been an absolute hero uh, for the way he's behaved himself and the way he's been the non-playing, non-captain captain. The villains, I think there are a few in the team of uh, my home country <laughs> <laughs> who were shocking, uh, in at least in the, the last uh, 10 minutes of their game against Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland in which there was, there was, Jan Sommer was a hero for, for Switzerland. But I'd rather concentrate on the heroes rather than the villains. And But also, yeah. like Lindsay, I think the referees were amongst the heroes as well. Uh, yeah. They were uh, the, the refereeing has been of a standard. I cannot remember a tournament that has been as well refereed and as consistently refereed as this one. Yeah. And the villains, UEFA, of course, I had forgotten. <laughs> they, 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 you know, absolutely, they don't come out of this uh, of this tournament with uh, uh, their their standing enhanced, and it won't be enhanced, all, you know, any, any more by announcing that they're thinking about a 32-team Euro. But that's a different matter to be talked about for in a, on a different day, perhaps. Lindsay, what's your connoisseur's moment of the tournament? The one that really you went, that is true footballing beauty. I think very early on it was Patrick Schick and, and that goal against Scotland, um, yes. the Czech Republic. Because I think you have to take away the iconic moments from this tournament that you know are going to be shown for many, many years to come. And, and as soon as I saw that, I knew it was going to be on repeat. And and I actually listened to another show and and someone talking about it um, because there have been so many goals from the halfway line that, you know, was there going to be a bit of fatigue with that? But I felt like this was a new invention of it. It was, it was <laughs> definitely offered something different. I mean, I know that we're very, very close to England and p- potentially to the stories, but I, I think the Raheem Sterling growing up in Brent, being able to see the arch being that player that that really pulled and dragged England through those group stage matches and even against Germany. I, I felt like he really shone and I think that he would be one of those players. At Spinozola, who was at the mm. final last night watching but was 
I, I probably think Shuin to be player of the tournament had he not got that injury. Um, mm. I think he's been one of the players that's really caught everyone's eye in world football. So those kind of some, some moments, they kept coming that day, just the day where you had Spain, Croatia and France, Switzerland. You know, in, in Olympic terms, we talk about Super Saturday from, from London 2012. And, and yeah. that was the day of the tournament. I think that actually might be the best day of, of overall football I've ever seen. Just because of just the absolute insanity and intensity and excitement. It was. I'm not sure whether I'd go that far because I feel like because it's so fresh in the memory that we mm. probably remember that so much. There might have been other days and people might be wanting to scream at us about it. Certainly people older than we are. But I, I definitely think in recent memory, I've not felt anything like that in terms of 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 just the pure excitement because you mm. got to enjoy that as well, didn't you, as a neutral if you were in England? Fan, yes. So. So yeah, I think I think there've been so many moments, and and the fact that it even went ahead, and the gradual increase in crowds. I won't forget the first time um, in Budapest, that full stadium after what we'd been yeah. through with the pandemic, to actually hear a raucous crowd, really, really on top of their voice, singing at the top of their lungs, and being able to get that uh, across on TV, and and it did. It, it actually brought shivers. Finally, because you guys have both been working into the small hours and you deserve a kip, I want to ask you both, how does this set up England for the World Cup in Qatar, do you think? Oh, very well indeed. Obviously, with this caveat is the fact that um, a loss like this one uh, will leave deep psychological scars in in some players, in particular those who uh, were not quite able to to do what they wanted to do in, in the penalty shootout. But on the other hand, it's the youngest England team uh, that England has ever sent to a major tournament. Uh, I think the oldest players in the squad are uh, Kyle Walker and um, Jordan Henderson. The next World Cup, whatever we think about that particular World Cup, Hmm. again, that's something we can talk about another day, will come soon enough uh, for them to to show their potential. I also think that we've, we've not seen all that this England team can can bring to the table in terms of the way it plays, which is perhaps my biggest disappointment for yesterday's final, where I was hoping perhaps of seeing more football mm. than what I actually did. But the players are there. Uh, it's one of the richest, deepest squads that any England manager has ever had at his disposal. There are some stellar talents in there. And I, I also think that, you know, they managed to put aside club rivalries, which had been a poison in the England camp in previous competitions. Uh, there's obviously a genuine togetherness, uh, a pleasure of, of being together and of mm-hmm. having a common aim. They've got the right person at the, at, the t- at the top, somebody who is growing, grew immensely during this tournament, tactically, for example, in his approach to the game. Now, maybe just a little bit more freedom in the way they play, which I, I'm sure is the way they're going to go forward. And England can aspire to... Uh, to very, very, very big things indeed. And uh, from the outside, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that England will be, and I'll, I say that and I know um, <laughs> I know what's coming back to me, <laughs> one of the favourites for the 2022 World Cup when this generation of players should be really hitting its stride. What I think they gain as well is a huge psychological advantage going into this World Cup for other nations. Because across 90 minutes, England were not beaten 
in this tournament. And that's got to resonate. I honestly feel that bigger nations, when they've come up against England in the past, have not feared them. And mm-hmm. there's not been any reason to, you know, not getting past a semi-final stage for so, so long isn't going to put fear into the opposition. But I think now going into those bigger games, I think staring into the whites of their eyes, <laughs> I think yeah. the opposition will now think, oh, okay, this is going to be a tougher ask. It's going to be a tougher mission to get past this England team who will have had another year and a half together to get even better. Riding to glory on an inflatable unicorn in a swimming pool <laughs> near you. Lindsay Hoofer, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. The Offside Rule podcast is in your podcast app right now and it's worth listening to. Philip O'Claire, thanks for coming back to the bunker. Well, thank you very much for having me. Listeners, thanks for listening. It was a tough old night. It nearly came home, but we've all gone out for a big night out and then forgotten where we live, haven't we? There's always the future. And there's only four weeks till normal football starts again. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>